This episode contains sensitive content that may not be appropriate for listeners of all ages. Listener discretion is advised. From Salt Lake City, Utah, this is Mountainland Physical Therapy's Pelvic Health Podcast. I'm your host, Madison Splan. Thanks for listening. Today's topic is on home programs for pelvic health. And one exciting piece of news I'd like to share with all the listeners is that I got the results back from the women's clinical specialist and I passed. So now I am one of three in the state of Utah. And I believe based on the APCA website, there's only about 433 of us nationwide. So I feel privileged to be a part of this awesome group. Um, So today's guest is Haley Hudson, and I will let her introduce herself. Yeah, thank you, Madison. First off, congratulations, because that's a huge accomplishment. Um, And I am uh, another physical therapist working uh, with Mountainland Physical Therapy in the West Jordan office. Um, I got my doctorate of physical therapy uh, from the University of uh, Mary in Bismarck, North Dakota. In my undergrad, I uh, received a bachelor's of science, uh, exercise science um, from Idaho State University. And I'm just Really excited to be here today to talk about pelvic health home programs. Awesome. Yeah. So for the listeners out there, this is definitely going to be more aimed towards patients rather than providers, but even providers, you can gain something from this in regards to your exercise prescription for patients. Um, The goal of this podcast is really to kind of get some information out there to women on different diagnoses that we treat in the clinic and give you options to try at home before you can make it into a clinic or if you live in a rural area or cost or family is a barrier into a clinic, these are options that you can try on your own. Um, And again, at the end of the podcast, I'll give an email that you can always resort to if you have any further questions about some of these home programs or modifications or anything like that. So some of the things that we're going to talk about today encompass um, incontinence, both urinary and fecal, constipation, uh, the really hot topic conversation right now, which is that diastasis rectus abdominis. Uh, We're going to talk about C-section scar pain. We're going to talk about pelvic pain, like pain with intercourse, pain with tampons. Then we'll kind of go over different pregnancy-related pains that kind of come along, whether it's like the low back because of the SI joint, um, some sciatica, as well as pubic symphysis dysfunction, or that pain that's in the lower pubic bone region. So those are going to be like our main topics to start with. Um, And then we'll dive in deep. We're going to kind of give some definitions of what these are and then dive into what you can do at home to start to manage these symptoms on your own. So I'll let Haley start by kind of talking about the different types of incontinence and what they are. Yep. So first off, just a kind of a general definition, urinary incontinence is described as the unintentional loss of urine. Um, so stress incontinence, and then we have an urgency incontinence, and then you can have a mixed uh, kind of a, both of those at the same time. So specifically stress incontinence is um, the loss of urine with force. So if you're jumping, coughing, sneezing, um, any, type, any type of movement, maybe from from twitching from a sitting to standing position, um, any type, anything like that is, is uh, considered stress incontinence. Um, whereas urge incontinence is when you feel the, the urge to avoid, you have a difficult time making it um, 
fully to the toilet. So your loss of urine kind of on the way um, and inability to hold that. Um, same thing, kind of fecal incontinence. I don't know if you want to go into that medicine or... No, you're good. Okay. So fecal incontinence is kind of a similar thing. Um, you can have it just kind of loosely losing stool throughout the day, um, or you can, again, once you feel that urge, have the inability to make it completely to the bathroom. So. Awesome. All right. So let's kind of talk first about urgency incontinence. So the really the mechanism behind urgency incontinence is that the bladder muscle itself starts to spasm. The bladder muscle is an autonomic muscle. We can't have our brain tell our bladder to contract. It's a similar muscle to our heart, right? We're not telling our heart to pump, just to kind of make an analogy there. And so urgency incontinence, the bladder muscle itself starts to spasm and we don't have enough pelvic floor control to stop that contraction to urinate. So kind of normal mechanisms that occur within the body is our bladder fills, we have stretch receptors in our bladder that send a signal to our brain to tell our brain, okay, my bladder is full, it's time to go to the bathroom. We go to the bathroom, we sit down. Our pelvic floor muscles, which are skeletal muscles that we have control over, they relax. And then our bladder muscle contracts. Then we urinate. After we've fully voided, then our pelvic floor muscles achieve a resting tone, and then our bladder is able to fill. And so we kind of have a disconnect with our brain, our pelvic floor, and our bladder when we have a problem with urgency, and our bladder starts to contract. So the biggest piece of advice that I can tell my patients that have this urgency is you just need to stop whatever you're doing right when that improper signal reaches the brain. And what you do after that rest point, you do five pelvic floor squeezes in a row. So you're squeezing those muscles up and in similar to stopping your urine midstream. You're having difficulty isolating those muscles, try stopping your urine midstream. Now we don't want you doing this repetitively because the research shows that that can actually increase urinary urgency symptoms. But if you're having problems isolating those muscles, go, go ahead and try and stop your urine midstream. And that's how you'll know that you're gaining that proper contraction. Um, another huge thing with urgency has to do with different bladder irritants. Uh, Haley, do you want to tell the listeners like what to look out for in regards to bladder irritants? Yeah, so caffeine is a major bladder irritant. Um, anything with increased acidity, so juices, um, pops, uh, alcohol, all of those kind of that category of stuff uh, of, of liquids really increase the irritation to the bladder lining. And then that can cause sort of a, an increase in that those signals to the brain, which makes, you know, you feel like I have to go right now. That, that sort of that feeling is, is heightened. Um, per se. So the other thing too I want to touch on is the amount of water consumption. So a lot of people think um, if I can't hold it, I'll just not drink um, water, right? So I, I kind of always in, try to tell my patients too, um, if you, you have to continue to drink water and so we have to, to kind of fight it from a, a mental standpoint. And the other thing bladder or the bladder irritants and water combination, I tell people to sort of like was called double fisting. That's what I call it. Um, so anytime you're drinking a bladder irritant, you're also drinking water. So that irritation to the bladder lining is decreased. 
Yeah, definitely. So for those listeners out there, yeah, if you don't have any fluid in your bladder, that's an irritant in itself. Um, so definitely make sure you're doing slow sips throughout the day just to kind of throw out a few norms for everybody because I think sometimes I'll get patients in the door that think that they have urgency issues. When I break down the real norms, they realize that that's not so much the case. So um, healthy individuals should be able to hold their bladder two to three hours. Um, we should be able to sleep throughout the night without waking up more than one time to go to the bathroom. And our urination, if we were to count in seconds, should be between 8 and 12 seconds. So say you get that sensation that you need to go to the bathroom. You go, you sit down, you count how long you're urinating for, and it really was only about 6 seconds. What that tells you is your bladder capacity was not reached. So that was more of an urgency symptom. You could have held longer to hold more fluid. So those are just some good norms for you that you can work on in order to try and progress that time that you have in between your voiding. One other thing that's really important with urgency is trying to cut out that just in case urination. So um, run into the store real fast. I should just urinate just in case. Now that's okay if you're at that two to three hour time frame but if you just went to the bathroom an hour ago don't don't go just in case you're okay your bladder has that capacity to hold for another hour hour and a half two hours so you know just keep pushing the timeline about 15 20 minutes as you're successful without having those urgency symptoms do you have anything else, Haley, to touch on with urgency incontinence for patients with the home program? Nope. I was just going to just kind of round that up and say that it's a lot of where we start to in the clinic when we see patients is on the mental side of things. So just kind of take in those points and tips that you just did and, and starting, starting there. Yep. I think one of the things I like to tell patients is like, brain over bladder like you got this okay so just kind of tell your brain it's a powerful organ it can shut that bladder spasm off so you have control all right well let's kind of move into uh stress incontinence so when you're talking to patients about a home program for stress urinary incontinence what is your kind of kegel prescription how do you describe to do a kegel haley First, I, you know, like you just said, if if they if we are not seeing them in the clinic, um, or for some reason we're not able to do an internal exam, um, I kind of have my patients. I say, here's a couple of things that you can try: the stopping flow, you know, stopping midstream. Um, that's that's a kegel. Okay, get that feeling down one time. I really stress the only doing it one time though. Um, and then I have I give them the option of either placing one finger vaginally so themselves, and and what you're looking for, or feeling for, is that you're the, your vaginal pelvic floor there, the muscles um, are kind of squeezing around your finger and pulling it up towards your stomach um, or placing a mirror um, in between their legs and then making sure that the muscle tissue, what you're seeing is a closing of that opening and then sort of a pulling away from the mirror. So just making sure that, you know, you know how to do a Kegel because the one thing we don't want to do is bear down, <laughs> which is the, the opposite. <laughs> so um, just making sure that you try out one of those three options before you just, you know, kind of start going for it. 
That's true. I've had some patients feel like they're doing a Kegel because they get tissue approximation and that's more because they're straining and then they have a minor prolapse. And so that tissue space is being eliminated because we're straining and it's other tissues, the bladder, the cervix that are dropping into that vaginal canal. So I think that's a great cue. Um, one of the biggest cues that I instruct my patients on in regards to the Kegel activation is you want to coordinate that with breathing out. So our pelvic diaphragm, our pelvic floor, and our respiratory diaphragm are related. So when we breathe in, both our respiratory diaphragm as well as our pelvic diaphragm draw down. As we breathe out, they both draw up. So if we can facilitate that pelvic squeeze with breathing out, then we are just facilitating that natural motion that's already occurring. I would say 98% of patients in the clinic are holding their breath or they're breathing in. So really breaking that pattern off in the beginning, that coordination can be difficult to get down, but once you got it, you're on the right path. One other reason that I like to coordinate it with breathing out is because a lot of our women have issues with the coughing, with sneezing, with lifting, and with all those exercises and activities, we're breathing out. Um, if coughing and sneezing tends to be your greatest difficulty, once you've done and you feel like you've gotten down that Kegel activation with breathing out, then I change and I'll switch gears and I'll have patients practice taking a deep breath as they're holding that Kegel because that's what happens before we sneeze or we cough. We take a deep breath and then we cough or we take a deep breath and then we sneeze. And so it's that deep breath that really stretches the pelvic floor that makes it difficult to maintain that pelvic squeeze. And so if we can train how we want to sort of play is the best analogy, then we need to practice those activities. So say running, that's that's your goal. I want to be able to run without urine leakage. What I encourage patients to do is start breaking up your gait mechanics with running and practicing Kegels in those positions. So practice your Kegel with a really long uh, stride length with both feet planted. Then try a Kegel with single leg stance. As we know, as we run, we're pretty much going from single limb to single limb to single limb. So if you can practice doing that Kegel in the shower or you're brushing your teeth and you're standing on one leg, that can really help to break up those gait mechanics with running in order to achieve that goal that you're looking at. Um, Haley, do you want to maybe touch on some of those different options out there in regards to like weights and stimulators that patients can try as well if they're not gaining the results that they want by just activating those Kegel muscles? Yeah, so there are um, some couple options out there. So vaginal weights, um, which if you are, are kind of at the point where you're you're having leakage, we, we usually don't typically start you there. But um, if you you know if you feel like that's something that you want to try, um, th those are a great option. And how those work is you place the weight vaginally, um, and they come with instructions typically. But um, and what you're trying to do is hold that weight in for a certain period of time, and then you know, okay, I can kind of move up from from that weight um and then the other thing there is a couple other they're called like kegel trainers is sort of the hot word on amazon <laughs> um and they have they come with apps now and i kind of encourage my patients to to use those sometimes too because um it kind of makes it more you know fun they some of the apps have games or, or some of the, the trainers have games and stuff and so um yeah you just just 
looking online, you're, what you'll be looking for is, is a Kegel trainer or pelvic floor muscle trainer. Um, and then you just want to look for something that is, you know, comfortable silicone in nature is typically what I try to have patients look for. Um, and then, yeah, there's a couple brands. I don't know if you have specific brands that you like. There's one that I know it's key hell that was created by pelvic floor therapists. So, um, that's the one I typically try to, to steer my patients towards, but. Awesome. Yeah. And then, um, talk maybe a little bit about those stimulator units like we get through CMT. Yes. Um, and so what we use in the clinic is an internal um, kind of vaginal probe that has electrical stimulation. And so they've done extensive research on um, just even placing the that probe in there and just resting and having the EMG going. So the stimulation to the muscles um, can kind of cause an increase in the in sort of the, the muscle strength there or at least the, the coordination. So. Yeah, we yeah, the nice thing about those stimulator units is that we can program them both for urgency, stress, or both. There's different wavelengths in regards to the electrical stimulation that's occurring. Um, in general, with neuromuscular electrical stimulation, the best results are going to happen if you're doing the muscle contraction at the same time. So for this instance, when you feel that stimulator starting, you want to also do a Kegel with it. The reasoning behind that is because neuromuscular electrical stimulation is firing what's called the fast twitch muscles. In our body, we are made up of fast twitch and slow twitch muscles. The pelvic floor specifically, 30% are fast twitch and 70% are slow twitch on average. And so you definitely want to be performing that active Kegel at the same time to gain the best results. Um, but I really like the emulator unit for those patients that hit a plateau or maybe there's a neurological dysfunction going on underlying whether it's Parkinson's or MS or um, even a spinal cord injury itself where it's incomplete. Um, those are really good patients that gain benefits from that stimulator unit. Yeah, or, or just patients who have a difficult time even feeling a, a Kegel. So if you're, you know, that sort of that weak in your pelvic floor musculature and you have a difficult time feeling even in a supine or anti-gravity position, then it's kind of nice, you know, it gives them something to, to sort of know what they're, what you're feeling for, what, what muscle group you're trying to target. So Definitely. And kind of going back to that instruction with the Kegel, um, if you're looking for some higher level activities to do in regards to the Kegel, you can work on what's called the elevator activity. So the elevator, instead of squeezing at your max, what you're trying to do is slowly engage those pelvic floor muscles and then slowly relax them. That kind of teaches your muscles that there is a range. The reason that I like to instruct on this is because if you're a runner or you're trying to get back to a high fitness class, maintaining your 100% Kegel is not obtainable over an hour's time. So my goal for patients, once we gain good control with very rudimentary activity, is trying to engage your pelvic floor at 25% engagement. That is obtainable over an hour. So the way I tell patients how to find that at home is squeeze your max, do that a couple times, okay? Now break that in half, do that a few times, and now break that in half again. That is kind of a resting tone of your pelvic floor that's obtainable and 
symptom managing for higher impact type sports. And so we understand that a max Kegel is not obtainable. So trying to, to just find those ranges and engaging at a tolerable level that will prevent the leakage but not fatigue is important. And everyone's a little bit different, but that's just kind of an easy way to try and find that 25% engagement. For sustainability. Yep, yeah. exactly. All right, well, I think we've done a pretty good kind of home program for urinary incontinence. So let's kind of switch gears now and talk about some things for fecal incontinence. Now, of course, everything that we just talked about in regards to pelvic floor strengthening 100% correlates with fecal incontinence. There's a couple other things that can also be of benefit. So as we all know, we have our poop looks different, right? We have constipated pebbles all the way to loose sludge, okay? So Google Bristol stool chart. That will show you all what they look like, what they describe like, and what is normal. Normal is number three and four on the Bristol stool chart. So Google that, look it up, help you kind of identify what's normal. A lot of patients that I find with fecal incontinence have a direct correlation with very, very loose stool. Okay, so they're really, really high number on that Bristol stool chart. One thing that can be of benefit for you is adding Metamucil to your diet. Metamucil is a type of fiber that helps to actually bulk the stool. And so then we don't have that loose stool, but we're actually getting good bulk and it's easier for our pelvic floor to maintain a good tone and keep that bulkier stool where we want it until we're ready to sit down and have a bowel movement. Um, so I would say that's probably one of your easiest things to try is adding just some Metamucil to your diet. Benefiber is gonna make you go the other way. It's gonna make you get more loose. Metamucil is more of a, a stool bulker. And so I just want to mention too on that one, sometimes patients will be like, well, I, I know I'm constipated, but I still have leakage. And so kind of figuring out, so, so sometimes that's possible too, where a little bit, so you, you might still be constipated, right? But a little bit of the stool is kind of seeping through. And so the pressure from that constant constipation is, is sort of loosening the pelvic floor. And then that causes an inability of it to hold back the looser stool. And so that can sometimes, so that might kind of be confusing to some, sometimes to people where they're like, well, I feel like I'm constipated, um, but I'm still having this leakage, you know, how is that possible? So yeah, kind of just the. <laughs> oh, that's a good aside for sure. And then that uh, pelvic stimulator that we were talking about also has a rectal probe, not ideal. It's definitely not a comfortable intervention, but it is effective. And there is research out there that supports rectal stimulation to improve fecal incontinence. So um, if that's what you're suffering with, try adding the Kegels, try adding some Metamucil. If you're not seeing the gains, maybe get online, try and find one of those pelvic floor stimulators to really activate um, the rectal tissues involved. Yeah, it is good to mention too that we just, there are, you know, a number of things that we can try for that. So it's not, you know, it's not just like now that I, I have this and I'm just, I'm just stuck with that. So I think yeah. people need to know that as well. Mm -hmm. I would say the most common like reasons I have seen it in my clinic is um, a grade four tear from childbirth that goes through the rectal tissues, um, as well as 
banding for hemorrhoids. Sometimes that can mess up that neuromuscular response going on as well, or weakened pelvic floor causing erectocele or erectile prolapse. That's kind of where you get this weird pocket and some people um, need to almost push on their perineal tissue, the tissue kind of in between the vaginal canal and the rectal canal in order to have a bowel movement. So that's kind of what I generally see in the clinic for patients with fecal yeah, and one thing too that you can do at home is to just make sure that when your body tells you that you need to go, that you go. So I've had a couple nurses or, you know, doctors who have to withstand, you know, hours and they're not able to do it, then, that then you have sort of a, a difficulty on the other end. So if your body says that you have to go, then try to listen to it so you don't kind of override that natural um, response and stimulus. So. Awesome. So we've kind of been touching on it. So Haley, do you want to kind of move into now, like what is constipation and what are some of the interventions that patients can try at home for that? Yeah. So um, constipation is def defined as requiring straining or um, like a difficulty to pass stool um, or if it's hardened or in pellet type um, form. So, um, and then if it's infrequent or you, when you desire to, to pass stool, you have a difficult time doing it. So infrequency is kind of varying. Some people are, are normal is three days and then, or, or three times a day. And then other people's normal is once every three days. So typically they say if it's, if you're going less than, um, once every three days, then you're considered constipated. Um, so a couple of things you can do is a, a massage to, so like a, a bowel massage. So starting from the, so the right side of your hip and then just slow counterclockwise circles moving to the left side of your hip. Um, that's kind of one thing that you can do at home. Uh, and then increasing, like you met, mentioned, the sort of your fiber, the right kind of fiber, and then water also is a big, it's a big thing, it's a big, big starter point. Definitely, definitely. So like normals for water is about 1,500 to 2,000 milliliters a day. So if you're thinking of like an average bottle of water that you would get at the store, you should be having about three to four of those a day. Um, some also some options are magnesium. That's like a dose of magnesium a day can be really helpful as well. Again, you're, my constipated patients, Metamucil is not the right fiber. <laughs> That's going to make it worse. You want to go Benafiber option. Um, and then kind of back to that, uh, the massage technique, there's also another one out there called the ILU massage. So if you're looking down at your stomach, the I, so we kind of want to clear the pathway that we're trying to promote the stool going to. So the I you would start at the base of your rib on the left going down, and that's the I. And then the L, you would start at the base of your ribs on the right going across to the left and then down to the top of your hip, that's the L. And then the U, you start at the top of your right hip, you go up to the angle of your rib, you go across to the opposite angle and then back down again, and that's the U. Um, and the small circles are perfect. You want to give good pressure. A lot of my patients will find that the, the top or that U part is the most tender. Um, the reason we could do an ILU massage is because our colon is the most superficial structure in our abdomen beyond our muscles. And uh, we have our ascending colon, 
our transverse and then our descending colon. And so that is trying to promote um, the movement or the peristalsis that happens with natural digestion. Um, another thing that can be really helpful is getting what's called the squatty potty. So we have an angle from um, our rectum to our anus that has a ligament, like a sling ligament right there. So if our knees are situated slightly elevated above our hips, that loosens that sling and allows improved ease with bowel movements. I also instruct people on how to do a gentle pelvic push. So a lot of our stuff we've been talking about so far is what pelvic squeeze. Some individuals with constipation can have a little bit of discoordination where when they think they're pushing to strain, they're actually squeezing. So that's a good time to kind of bring out that mirror and look and see what's happening when you push. Do you see that tissue almost opening slightly? If not, if you see it puckering up, then you're doing the wrong thing. You need to be pushing. So sometimes I'll instruct patients on belly breathing. Take a deep breath through your belly, not your chest. Um, if you put your hands on your tummy, you want to push those out. That will also help to bulge the pelvic floor as well. Yeah, and big point there is to not do the valsalva maneuver, so constantly keeping your airway open. So when I tell patients that, it's always, you're always slightly exhaling. So it is a little bit confusing because you're, when you do a pelvic floor contraction, your stomach is going up and in with your pelvic floor. And this time we're saying, okay, same thing on the exhale. Now you kind of want to bulge it out. But is, is the most important thing with that is just to keep the airway open. Definitely. And I've noticed sometimes if people strain like 100%, that's when that discoordination will appear. So if you can strain at like 50%, that can actually be more effective than yeah. 100%. And then a couple other things dietary wise, warm drinks can help to stimulate. It can just even be warm water, warm non-caffeinated tea, but caffeine is definitely a stimulant for the bowels, um, as well as there is what's called a triggering meal. For a lot of individuals, that is breakfast. People have breakfast, five to 40 minutes later, they have a bowel movement because having food coming in helps to get that peristalsis working throughout the entire tract. And so that's where that triggering meal comes down. So I'll tell people like, try and have a minor meal in the morning, drink a hot beverage, sit on the toilet with your squatty potty, do those belly breaths, do those gentle pushes, um, and hopefully good things will happen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Make the magic happen. All right, do you have anything else, Haley, that you would recommend for patients that might be having some constipation? Nope, I think we pretty much pretty much covered it all there. Good, good. All right, let's go on to the fun topic of diastasis rectus abdominis. So these are, these are really fun patients. A lot of them don't really have pain. It seems counterintuitive that you would think of it, that it would cause back pain, but at this point, the literature shows no correlation, which I think is pretty crazy, but I've actually seen it clinically now. I have more patients with diastasis that don't have pain than do. Um, so that's kind of an interesting uh, observation, I would say. So Haley, why don't you tell our listeners out there how they can test for their diastasis and maybe some like 
don'ts? Like what should they not do if they see a diastasis? Okay, so testing position is kind of um, on your back with your knees bent and then you're taking your kind of your fingers and you can start with two fingers as we typically start with and you place them a couple couple inches or a couple centimeters above your belly button. Um, and then you're lifting your kind of your head and neck off the off the table or, or floor or wherever you're lying. And what you're looking for is a separation or so your fingers will kind of sink into a hole there. Um, and if that's present, then, you know, we say if it's larger than a finger width, um, sort of abnormal, then you have the presence of a diastasis recti. Um, and again, another testing spot is below the belly button. So same thing, place your fingers below the belly button, lift your head and neck off the table, and then you're feeling for that opening or sort of your fingers sinking in. Um, it, it'll be pretty pretty predominant if you have it, so you'll, you'll definitely be able to feel the separation there. Um, and then after you do the test, the big don'ts are to not lift your head and neck off the table. So um, like no crunches, no sit-ups, avoiding anything where you're sort of activating your rectus abdominis in, in like a pulling position. So even the, the biggest thing that I have patients do is just getting out of bed in the morning. Like every time if you sit straight up, then you're you're pulling on that in, in a bad not only is it bad for your back but it's also can kind of lead to an increasing in that separation or at least not benefit the closing of that so awesome I know clinically I find that like what you're saying the two centimeters above the belly button tends to be the greatest separation and yeah. as healing improves I think it has kind of this top-down bottom-up approach and I think it heals faster under the belly button than it does above the belly button so it's really important to really be continually testing as well. And a lot of patients will tell them, okay, instead of sitting straight up out of bed, roll onto your side and push up. You know, most of these patients are postpartum. So I'm like, just take yourself back to when you were pregnant um, and, and kind of stick with those rules for now until it's healed. Because yeah, you can definitely make it worse for sure. I mean, even core neutral activities can still activate that rectus abdominis. Um, the main goal with our training is the diaphragm and the transverse abdominis activation in order to promote that healing through the linea alba, which is that tendinous sheath that connects the rectus abdominis or those like washboard core muscles. Um, so kind of one thing that I really encourage most of my new mommies with is the lifting, right? We can't avoid lifting. We have to get baby out of the crib. We have to get baby in and out of the car and those infant car seats and those things get heavy, especially with the baby in there. So a really important thing to think about is always have your belly button sucked in. It's called the abdominal drawing in maneuver. Another way to think of it is like you were taking a picture, you want to look 10 pounds lighter. So your <laughs> belly button <laughs> Uh, that usually can help and yeah, gets a little laugh. So if you can always think to have a little bit of tone, a little bit of suck in, that will engage those that transverse abdominis. And then with the lifting, you want to breathe out during the hardest activity. That will keep the pressure in your abdomen low and prevent any abdominal bulging from occurring. And then Haley, maybe go through what like our good home program set of exercises for these ladies to start with. 
So the first thing that we always start with is the transverse abdominis activation. So, and I always start my patients in again, that kind of supine or, or laying on your back position with your knees bent um, and you're just breathing. So, but what you're doing with this breathing now on the exhale is you're pulling your belly button towards your spine and you're trying to kind of hold that there. And you're kind of trying to feel that tension um, and activation of your transverse abdominis. So, which is a muscle that runs from hip bone to hip bone is kind of the easiest um the easiest place to feel that and so that's sort of where i start is just with just with the breathing and trying to get um that the coordination of your your kind of drawing your belly button down and in and then on the exhale sort of coordinating there um, and then i usually progress to some pelvic tilts so as you sort of bring your pelvis up towards you or you like you have a bowl of soup in your spilling that bowl of soup onto your stomach um that's when you're you're exhaling and you're coordinating that breathing again so that's sort of the kind of the those two progressions that that i usually start my patients with um so for activation of the of the ta there awesome um, some other go-to's that are pretty easy to Google is um, it's called a heel abdominal brace heel slide. So with that, what you're doing is you're starting with your knees bent when you're lying on your back, and then you're doing that TA activation, and you're also trying to almost slightly roll your pelvis posterior so you flatten your back against the the ground or whatever surface you're on. Probably not on a, a soft surface though. You'll either want to do on like a carpet or a very firm surface and then what you're doing is you're slowly trying to extend one leg while keeping your foot on the table and coming back in now if you notice that your low back starts to come off the table then you're not maintaining that ta activation or that posterior pelvic tilt and you've extended your leg as far as you're able to now and then you'll slowly bring it back in now this isn't a quick one like each heel slide should be about 10 seconds in duration this is not an exercise that you're going to feel sore from unless you get like a crazy good belly laugh going on that's really engaged in those lower abdominal muscles. I have a lot of patients that are like, I'm not sore. And I'm like, if you're sore, you're probably doing it wrong. Um, so that's kind of a good cue to think of. Um, another exercise that's really good, same thing. You're drawing that belly button in as you're doing the bird dog. So you're on your hands and knees and you're lifting opposite arm and opposite leg holding for five to 10 seconds um that's a that's a really nice easy way to to start progressing to different positions as well yeah and i also love the wall plank so just hands up against the wall and again kind of drawing this time it's a little bit harder because you're having to draw that that transverse abdominus up and in against gravity um, but you're in a safe position for your spine so um that's i love to give that one as well so arms just like a normal plank but you're just against the wall instead of on the ground awesome. yeah totally so that's kind of like a good starter point it's amazing like there are so many resources on the internet about diastasis rectus abdominis there's i know currently there is a huge randomized controlled trial going on in california in order to establish the gold standard protocol for core strengthening with a diastasis so you know keep up on it hopefully you know trials take a while so i would imagine it'll be in the five years or so we'll kind of get some good results coming out from that but um the biggest thing if you see your diastasis bulging up or tenting on your abdomen 
that exercise is too high level for you right now. Okay. The other big thing with crunching up is a no-no, but the opposite, V-ups. If you're doing leg lifts, that's also a no-no. So I would just say, if you see it, don't do it. It's too high level. And the biggest takeaway, if you can just live with your belly button slightly sucked in, it'll stabilize your back. It'll add that transverse abdominus and help with that diastasis healing. Yeah, and you're um, also likely contracting your pelvic floor. So, so it's yes, win all over. <laughs> Bonus. Um, there's another thing out there that you can try and do on your own. Okay, so if you have a separation of like four fingers, you should be using an abdominal binder um, to stabilize those muscles. Once it's less than four fingers, you have another option, which is kinesio tape. So kinesio tape is that like stretchy tape that like maybe you can recall seeing on like the beach volleyball players that's all on their shoulders and stuff. So that's kinesio tape. It has a stretch component to it. You can put it on your abdomen in about like an X, tacking down at the bottom and pulling up and across with the X, the center of it, being at the greatest separation. Um, that's a really good option. It's definitely a little bit difficult to do on yourself, but if you're looking for a little added stability, that's something that you can do. So you kind of almost squeeze those ab muscles together prior to applying the tape. Um, there are some precautions with it. So make sure when you're applying the tape, you don't have stretch on either end. You put the tape on without stretch, then you pull it across. And then before you tack it down at the very end, you want to make sure there's no stretch on it. That will preserve skin integrity. And the tape can stay on for like five days at a time. Um, when you take it off, you want to make sure it's wet. Go slowly. It is a strong adhesive, so be nice to yourself and then moisturize well afterwards. Give yourself a couple days without the tape and then reapply. Awesome. Well, so that's like a brief diastasis. Again, there's so much information out on the internet for that. So if you want more, like dive deep into the inner, inner webs, it's, it's amazing what's out there. Yeah. Or contact us. <laughs> oh yeah. Or contact us. <laughs> Which I'll give you that information at the end. Okay. So now let's kind of move on to C-section scar pain. So it's not common, but it can happen. Um, so I personally had a C-section and I had a little bit of scarring pain, not so much on the superficial scar that you see, but the internal scar actually goes from pelvis to pelvis. And so that's where I really had difficulty, like trying to wear a baby carrier, trying to wear normal pants again, you get like sensitivity through that region. That is not normal. It is common. Back pain is common, doesn't make it normal. <laughs> All right. So I think there's like a big misconception, both of urinary incontinence too. Like, yeah. no, I have seen women that have had five children vaginally and have no urinary incontinence. So yeah, it's common to have issues with urine leakage after babies. Doesn't make it normal. Good point. <laughs> Peeing your pants is never normal. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I take an aside. Okay, so uh, Haley, do you want to maybe talk about some of the things patients can work on on their own after they're having some C-section scar pain? Yeah, and so kind of uh, just generalize little scar tissue mobilization is a great place to start. So gentle, um, either with some cocoa butter or something that is a little bit lubricating lotion. Um, and then just kind of, again, we do a cross friction kind of massage. So where you're holding, especially if you're trying to get the 
the below, this below scar tissue, below the surface scar tissue, um, where you're kind of holding the top, your fingers like so the top layer of skin in place and you're massaging kind of underneath that scar, if that makes sense. So um, you're trying to get deeper than, than just sort of rubbing the skin. And so I have my patients just okay, place about two fingers kind of right over the scar. And then so you're, you're kind of mobilizing a little bit deeper. Um, and you can do that kind of just along the whole the whole entire scar. Um, and then the other thing that we do have is what you have written on here is a, is a cupping set. Um, and so I use that a lot. That's a little bit higher level. So I'd say if you can't tolerate touch right in the beginning, I would start with um, just kind of self-mobilization in scar tissue, you know, just with your hands. And then if you're like, okay, I can, I can tolerate the pressure. I'm looking for something a little bit deeper than something like the, like the cupping or something like that would be um, beneficial. Yeah, so you can definitely, like, there's like a $20 set online, and it's it's just like a pneumatic or an air suction style, and it's, it's really user-friendly. Um, another way you can try and mobilize your scar is literally with both of your hands, you want your thumb and your index finger, and you almost try and pick the scar up and then do a, like, a kneading type of a maneuver between your finger and your thumb. Definitely more aggressive for <laughs> sure. Um I will say personally, no pain, no gain when it comes to scar and incisional pain, um, just in general, really for orthopedic or obstetric. Um, you you got to inflict a little pain to know that you're breaking up that scar tissue. Um, and then do like some, I, there's really good stretches out there. So like the Cobra stretch, that's a really nice one on your stomach pushing up through your arms. So you're kind of arching through your low back and getting a stretch through your abdomen. Um, you can do a hip flexor stretch, whether you're lying on the edge of your bed with one knee bent up towards your abdomen, the other one kind of hanging off the edge, or if you're in a kind of a half kneel position and you almost slightly lunge forward, you'll feel it on that, that side where you're kneeling on. Um, those are really good options. If you have a therapy ball, just trying to kind of arch over the therapy ball, um, that can be really helpful. C-sections do put you at risk for a diastasis. So you kind of want to look at that and be cautious with some of the exercises I'm about to go through in that regards, because these two that I'm going to talk about in a minute are very high level and not appropriate if you have a diastasis. But if you don't, um, the biggest thing is eccentric contraction. So eccentric means that the, the muscles are lengthening as you're contracting. So they're usually a slow and controlled contraction as well. So one that I'll do for the abdomen, if you have a therapy ball, great. If not, you can do it to neutral. That's okay. But what you do is you crunch up about one second. And then as you're going back, to neutral or even slightly arching beyond neutral, you're going back slowly. So those abdominal muscles that might have some adhesions from the scarring release as you're going down and then you come back up fast. So like a one to five ratio. Then the other one I like to give is an eccentric hip flexion. So you're kind of on the edge of maybe your bed or on the edge of a couch. You have um, the knee bent that's like more supported and then the one off to the side stays straight and you kind of bring it up fast and then you want to take it down slow to where you almost feel that stretch through your hip flexor and that lower abdomen. And those are a couple exercises that can help to lengthen those muscles, keep them strong and break up some of those adhesions. 
Okay. So last but not least, let's talk about pelvic pain and home programs for pelvic pain. So Haley, do you want to maybe discuss a couple of like, like what is pelvic pain? What are those symptoms like um, for the listeners so they kind of know if they fall into that category? Yeah. So pelvic pain in brief um, is difficulty. So it can, it can even be um, just like sitting. So if you're, if you're sitting and you have pain kind of peri, perianally or around like the, the area, the surface that you're sitting on, that's what we consider, um, you know, to be a category of pelvic pain. The other big category is pain with insertion or penetration. So it can be insertion of a tampon or pain with gynecological exams um, or pain with intercourse. And so um, can be deep pain or pain with just even that sort of that initial um, insertion and so, uh, and also difficulty with insertion. So, um, sometimes, you know, the muscles are okay at very first, but then you have pain with sort of deeper penetration. So you might not have pain with uh, tampon insertion, um, but intercourse can be a little bit more uncomfortable. And so those are kind of the, you know, a couple of just briefly, a couple of the categories. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, a couple other ones. Um, if you get like numbness or tingling or burning in the pelvic floor, it can be what's called pudendal neuralgia. That's the nerve that kind of exits through the pelvic floor and the vagina and innervates your pelvic floor muscles sensory wise. Um, it can also even be the inability to even use a tampon to not, you can't even have intercourse um, or, you know, you could have some postpartum incisional pain from an episiotomy or tearing. Um, so those are a couple other kind of reasons that you might be having pelvic pain as well. Um, unfortunately, those ladies out there that have a history of sexual trauma, your risk of having pelvic pain is significantly heightened um, for obvious reasons. So if you fall into that category, definitely start early with these interventions because it's a little bit slower going and that's totally fine. We have to change our interventions depending on our circumstances, but that's just something to be aware of for sure. Yes, and also post, post-surgery, post so post-hysterectomy or post um, any kind of cancer intervention to ovarian cancer or anything like that, so. Yep. Awesome. All right, well, how about you kind of start off with some of the uh, interventions that these ladies can uh, do? Okay. Um, so first thing is to just kind of become familiar with your pelvic floor and know that what you're going through is, you know, um, not, how do I want to say this? It's, it's not normal, but it's, you're not alone. Right. Um, and so, uh, sometimes we, I guess for at home, could start with a gentle stretching program. So again, sort of just finger insertion, your own finger, and just kind of stretching the pelvic floor wall. Um, they do give, you could buy a dialer set as well, and just kind of start with that. Well, the biggest thing with that is just slow, going slow. So definitely starting at the sort of the lowest level and um, inserting just very very slowly um, and then just kind of moving up as as you feel comfortable or in, in as, as tolerated um, so don't don't move up on on dilator levels until you can tolerate you know sort of full insertion of the the lower level or, or whatever level you started on um, that's typically where I kind of have people start or would start awesome um, if you're having pelvic pain one of the great options out there uh, not a plug for Walgreens. I have no, 
no financial backing, but um, Walgreens has a great over-the-counter 5% anal rectal lidocaine. Um, this is in the hemorrhoid section, not the pain relief one, so get the right one. It's in like this light blue box, kind of a toothpaste style box and tube. Um, you can apply that intravaginally to about layer one and that can apply a light numbing cream that helps to improve your tolerance with your pressure so that you're able to make more gains. Um, but be cautious of how your symptoms are afterwards because you don't want to push too much to then because you're slightly numb, it's not uncomfortable, but then you have a, an increase in pain afterwards. So definitely be aware of that. Um, when you're doing the dilators, you want to make sure that like your legs are supported. So I'll usually have one knee bent similar to like a butterfly stretch position with some propping of a pillow under the knee. And then the other leg is gonna be straight and more in that like straddle stretch position. And then you want your trunk supported. If your core is engaging, it's gonna be really difficult to relax your pelvic floor muscles. So make sure you're like in a good environment, you're, you're propped well, your muscles are not engaging so that you can achieve the most relaxing position for a non-relaxing type of an intervention. Um, the other thing to think about is positioning. So say I would encourage most women to not try intercourse until they are able to tolerate a dilator the size as big or slightly bigger than their partner. I also instruct them on including partner in the dilator training. Generally, we don't want to include them until you're really close to their size because it can be a little discouraging for your partner if they're working with a smaller size um, and it you just need to learn your body in the beginning anyways but having your partner involved in the dilator training is really important for them to learn your body learn where your tender points are have that open dialogue when it's an inanimate object and it's not your partner. If we can make sure your brain associates any discomfort with a dilator and not your partner, that can really make a huge psychological difference. Um, a lot of women will just automatically clench when they think it's gonna, that this intimacy is going to progress to intercourse. And so if we can kind of break that brain pain association right off the bat and have it associated with an inanimate object, that is really important. Um, if you're an individual where tampons are already hurting, you should start this sooner than later so that, again, you don't even have a poor experience with intimacy. If you can stretch and have a great first time intimately without having to start that pain cycle, you will be much better off as well. Okay, I just kind of want to touch on that too. So um, I do have a couple of patients who say, I, I, you know, I, maybe they didn't, they haven't always had pelvic pain and now they do have pelvic pain and they like, I, I know that intercourse is great and I know that it feels good and I don't understand, like, I don't feel like I'm bracing for it. Um, and so I just kind of want to make the point that sometimes it's sort of a subconscious thing, like your, your body feels like it is, it needs to protect you. Um, and so it, even if you, you know, in your brain, you know, you're, you're, you're into your partner, you're very, you know, you love your partner, you, you want to have this moment with them. Um, subconsciously, your body is, is sort of bracing and preparing you for the pain. So just, a, yeah. it doesn't always have to be like, you know, as, a, as association doesn't mean that you dislike intercourse or anything like that. It's just kind of a, a subconscious bracing. So definitely. And um, 
One thing that can help with the, with the dilator insertion um, or removal to decrease pain is involving that belly breathing like we talked about earlier, as well as the pelvic push, because those are both ways that we can stretch those pelvic floor muscles as well. Um, there are also different tools out there. One is called a TheraWand. That is a soft tissue mobilization tool that you can use intravaginally if you just have like a tender point here or there. And those resources online, there's a couple different makers um, that if you just search the TheraWand or the pelvic or the pelvic wand, you'll find a couple different options out there that, that might work well for you. Yep, and that, that's kind of next level or for those patients that have deeper perineal pain. So if you have pain with, you know, immediate insertion, I maybe wait, wait on the fair one and start with the dilators, but yeah. Totally, yep. <laughs> the dilators are more of a broad stretch rather than point specific for sure. Awesome. Well, what I'm hoping for is maybe on like a podcast down the road, we'll be able to touch on some more of these pregnancy related home programs. But for now, at least we've kind of got you started with some of the major diagnoses, pelvic health related. And so up and coming home program for those pregnancy related pains from the SI joint, the sciatica and the pubic symphysis. Um, so in closing, I would like to, Thank you all for listening. If you would like to speak with a specialist, please email podcast at mlrehab.com. I'd also like to thank Kaylee for coming on the show today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. You're so welcome. This has been great, and I hope all the listeners out there found value in this. So thanks again for listening, and please stay tuned for our episode next month. This podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes only. Exercises that are safe and appropriate for some people may not be for you. No treatment program should be undertaken without first consulting your physical therapist or physician. The contents of this podcast is protected under United States copyright laws and may not be reproduced, redistributed, transmitted, displayed, published or broadcast without prior written permission of Mountainland Physical Therapy.